invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to the book of Exodus, and we're going to be giving our attention this morning to Exodus chapter 3, the first nine verses. I think it's, it's appropriate to say at a time like this that, you know, we ask that question, are you trusting Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the fulfillment of every promise that God has given, including the promise of eternal life? Um, we say that because in, in doing so, we're saying we're not, trusting, we're not trusting in our parents' astonishing parenting, or we're not trusting in being good enough, uh, we're not trusting in you know, how much we go to church or anything like that. We are trusting in, in one thing alone, and that's the work, the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's the key. But I sure do want to commend you parents. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see families, these sons and daughters, entrusting themselves to Christ and resolving with the help of God to, to follow him. God bless you. Well, I have a friend named Charlie. And uh, Charlie was not even, he was not even 10 years old when his world changed. In fact, his, the whole world changed. It was a beautiful Sunday morning, pretty much like every other morning in paradise. Charlie was on his bike. He was heading for home when the bombing started. And uh, when he saw that distinct you know, red circle on the wing of the aircraft as it banked over his Pearl City neighborhood, Charlie realized immediately all that that meant. He knew what it meant for him. He knew what it meant for the rest of the Japanese-American community that included my wife's grandparents that had made the islands of Hawaii their home. On December 7, 1941, the world changed. We could say the same thing about many other history-making moments. The end of the Battle of Yorktown on October 1781. Say that about the invention of the silicon chip in 1961. Say that about the terrorist attack on the Pentagon and the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. Things happened on these dates that turned the world upside down. And such was the day described in Exodus chapter 3. In fact, what happened on that day makes all, all the other epoch-making events in history pale in comparison. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whenever you lived, the echo effect of what happened on that mountainside in the wilderness of Sinai as recorded in Exodus chapter 3. It reverberates and will continue to reverberate through all eternity. So let's give our attention to it. I invite you, if you're able to stand in regard for God's word, and please follow along attentively. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 3. Verses 1 through 9. Now, Moses 
was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I'm the God of your father. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. God of Jacob, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the land of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, to draw even close to somewhere where we hear your voice, (laughs) to draw near to your word is to draw near to holy ground. When you speak, we're engaging in something astonishing, supernatural, life-changing world-altering. And we would confess to you now, we ask you now, we intentionally invite you now by the working of your Spirit to open the eyes of our hearts to behold you, the ears of our hearts to hear you. Make our souls live that we might know you and worship you, and follow you, and bring honor and glory to you, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. 
So we remind ourselves again, right, that Moses wrote these things. He wrote the book of Exodus to a million or so second-generation Hebrews. And these Hebrews, they are camped on the plain of Moab on the east side of the Jordan River in sight of the land that God had promised to them. It's, it's there. <laughs> the finish line is there. And all this generation has known is waiting, waiting for that day. All they've known for about 40 years is wandering. No, let's think about this, no purposeful employment, no satisfying accomplishments, no meaningful achievements, just Camping out. Some people, that could be like heaven, right? But I think that for many, not having anything other than surviving is a great challenge. But their world is about to change. They are on the verge of entering the promised land, and that meant they're on the verge of great conflict. They're about to engage with nations, people groups that are accustomed to war making. The, the land isn't going to be a freebie. It's not, you know, some government stimulus package. God is always doing more than meets the eye. And so besides just taking this land, God is also faithfully fulfilling his promise, his covenant promise to his people. He's also faithfully upholding his righteousness and satisfying his justice among nations who have defiantly set themselves up against him. So there's a lot going on. And what will this people need? What do the, what do the Hebrews need when the chariots appear? And the arrows are flying, and the blood begins to flow, and the battlefield is strewn with the torn bodies of their loved ones. What will they need when the challenges that they are about to face are far, far more intense than anything that they have dealt with during their lifelong campout? What they will need, what they will need more than anything, is to know who God is. They're going to need to know that God cares. They're going to need to know that God has a plan and a purpose for them. And they need to know that they can rely on God to deliver them from evil and from trouble when they call upon Him. I think that's the main point of this text. God will deliver people from the power of evil when they cry out to Him. That's God's promise. That's God's promise to the Hebrews. That's God's promise to us today. He will deliver you. He will deliver me from the power of evil when we cry out to him. And I get that from a refrain that Moses repeats three times in this, these, this early part of the book of Exodus, beginning in verse Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. It says, The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery 
and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people and God knew. When you are hurting, when you are suffering, when your heart is breaking, loved ones, God knows. He's not blind. He's not oblivious. He knows. And Moses repeats this in chapter 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. And then, for good measure, Exodus 3 verse 9. Behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. God means for us to know that he knows. (laughs) He means to anchor us. In this world-shaping promise that God will deliver people from the power of evil when they cry out to him. It's a promise to strengthen us. It is a promise that sustains us. It is a promise that is intended to function, to get things done. It's meant to work for us like a shield. A shield by which we can extinguish the flaming arrows that are aimed at killing our trust in the Lord. So listen, you know, if you do not have Psalm 50, 15 memorized, let's just take care of that right now. Psalm 50, 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Let's say that together, beginning with the reference, okay? Psalm 50, 15 Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Say it again, Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. For everyone, anyone here who finds themselves in this land in between, and you're, you're wondering, will I ever, will I ever move on from this empty, meaningless, wasted chapter in my life. Let's say it. Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. For anyone, everyone here who is enslaved by guilt and by shame and by self-pity, and you're worn out by all your vain attempts at self-salvation. Ready? Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. For anyone who finds themselves up against like spiritual darkness and evil, you just can't get a breakthrough. Psalm 50, 15. 
Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. For anyone here, you find yourself in trouble of any kind. Let's say it again. Psalm 50, 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's one of those promises that Jesus gave his life for. And why does God deliver us from trouble when we call? What motivates God to deliver us from the power? The power of evil? What moves him? What drives him? We all know that desire is a great motivator, right? It's what moves us. It's desire is the engine that keeps our lives going in some direction. And listen, desire is what drives God's actions as well. And so, what fuels God's heart? What motivates God to deliver people, help people, rescue people when they call upon Him? Let's say this one more time. <laughs> Psalm 50, 15, call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you, you shall glorify, and you shall glorify me. You see, God delivers people from the power of evil when they cry out to him for this. It's for the sake of his glory, that's why. God delivers so that he gets the glory. The giver gets the glory. God keeps his promises so that we will praise his glory. God saves and delivers and rescues so that all the earth will marvel. And just stand back and experience the pleasure of his glory. Loved ones, God does all that he does to satisfy his supreme desire to be known. For us to know Him, to be honored, that we would honor Him, to be treasured, that we would treasure Him for all that He is. God's driving passion and purpose is to be known and enjoyed for all that He is by people from every tribe and nation and tongue. And that goal, that goal of God is about to kick in to high gear in a whole new phase in Exodus chapter 3. The world is about to be turned upside down. Now, whereas Exodus chapters 1 and 2, Exodus chapters 1 and 2 cover 400 years of history. Exodus chapters 3 through 40, 38 chapters, they cover one year. We're about to drop into one year. And Exodus chapters 3 through 40 cover the year of God's deliverance. The year he answers the cry of the people. And whereas Exodus chapters 1 and 2 give attention to you know, a, a number of different characters... Now the text is about to focus mainly, mainly on one character. And, and you may be thinking, you know, 
you read those first couple chapters, you go, we got ourselves a hero. We got ourselves a hero. He, he's a man of Hebrew descent. He's, he is miraculously spared from death at his birth. I mean, his name literally means deliverer. He was providentially raised, trained, educated, equipped as a bicultural man in the Egyptian court. And at the age of 40, he seems to be coming into his own. Ryan, just draw attention to how Moses was a strong, compassionate man, a just and dangerous man, kind of a Kind of an ancient Jack Reacher, I think, you know. And, 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 and then, he, then, then his life takes this unanticipated turn. He kills a guy. And he turns fugitive. And he flees to the distant land of Midian. It's a long ways. It's a long ways. And he just drops off the grid for 40 years. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the real hero, the real hero of the book of Exodus finally takes center stage. It had been 400 years since anyone had heard his voice. 400 years of silence. 400 years since God had spoken to, he'd spoken in Genesis 46, Jacob, Jacob. But now in Exodus chapter 3 verse 4, as the world is about to turn upside down, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. So, just before those Israelites are going to cross that river and enter into battle for some land, God, through Moses, is about to shape a worldview. Before this next chapter that they are about to enter into, God, through Moses, is about to inform their thinking. Let me explain to you who God is. And friends, as you step into your tomorrow, let this history-changing moment root, root your future, your next chapter in the person and glory of God. Listen, God's purpose in this text is to build into us, as he was building into the people of Israel, unwavering confidence that he will hear and he will answer our cry to him in our day or days of trouble. He is saying to us, you can trust me. <laughs> you can be sure I will deliver you from the power of evil within you and around you. Why? On what basis? Because God delivers people from the power of evil who cry out to him 
in order to reveal that he is sovereign and in order to reveal that he is holy and in order to reveal that he is merciful. That's what he aims to do. God delivers people who call on him in their day of trouble so that we might know him as sovereign and holy and merciful. Let's look at each of those one at a time. First, God is sovereign. This this act of divine deliverance of the suffering Hebrews Look, it wasn't something God was, like, making up on the fly. You know, we've already mentioned it, but draw your attention to it again. God had told Abraham hundreds of years before how it was all going to unfold. In Genesis 15, 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. The plan's been established a long time ago. And as it relates to the man who, who would call and whom God would call and commission to lead them out, God, God wasn't making that up as he was going along either. Like, just like those second generation Hebrews had, who had spent the last 40 years in Nowhereville, you know, they, Moses had just spent the past 40 years of his life. In obscure, hidden anonymity. Exodus chapter 3 verse 1 says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. What, what had this former rising star in Pharaoh's court been doing for the last Four decades? According to Acts chapter 7, Moses was 40 years old when he, when he left Egypt to save his life. He wasn't leaving on his own terms, kind of forced out, right? According to Exodus chapter 7 verse 7, Moses is now, now in this year of deliverance, 80 years old. So for 40, think about this. For 40 years, Moses had been engaged in one of the most isolated, menial, unapplauded, high-risk, invisible, looked-down-upon vocations in the world. From age 40 to age 80... He worked shepherding sheep for his father-in-law. And it raises the question, doesn't it? How, How does 
that kind of anonymity affect a person's life? 40 years. <laughs> what happens when one's identity, so, so in this case, Moses' identity had high profile, high expectations, high impact, high investment, high capacity identity. When that comes to an end, and comes to an end, not on his own terms. How does that shape a person? Well, it turns out that our sovereign God can get lots of good things done in our seasons under the radar. One of the one of the most impactful books I think I read in 2021 was um, a book by Alicia Chole entitled Anonymous. Just one sentence. <laughs> Unapplauded but not unproductive. Hidden years are the surprising birthplace of true spiritual greatness. Such were the 40 years Moses spent as a shepherd, leading, learning, knowing, guiding, protecting the flock of his father in the Sinai wilderness. That's where he learned survival skills. That's where he learned how to handle snakes. We're going to see that soon. He, he learned how to endure long periods of loneliness. He learned how to temper his youthful ambitions. He learned, he learned brokenness. He learned through the powerful teacher of failure. He learned humility. He learned resilience and perseverance. He learned how to earn another's trust, the trust of his father-in-law. How could Moses... How could Moses ever have known or dreamed that the darkest years of his life, 40 years of his, the prime of his life, running for his life, working a humble, under-regarded, going-nowhere job well past his prime would be the crucial would be so crucial in God's providential and formational preparation to be a shepherd of God's people for another 40 years. Leading them. Keeping watch over them. Where? where? In, in the very same place? The Sinai wilderness? Our God is sovereign. He's working all things out in conformity to the purpose of his will. Psalm 139 verse 16 assures us, In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. Never lose sight of that. And just like Moses, just like Jesus, right? Je there's a guy, lived 30 years, unnoticed, unknown, 
unnoticed preparation before his deployment into the three most important years anyone has ever lived. That's our, that's our lives too. We are God's workmanship. In Christ Jesus, God has destined every day of our lives the best years and the worst years to shape us for good works, which he has prepared. When did he prepare them? Beforehand. He planned and prepared them beforehand. Before we were born, that we might walk in them. God put Moses in Sinai. God moved Moses to the west side of the wilderness. It was God's invisible hand that took Moses to where? Oh yeah. The mountain of God. Funny how he ends up there. And it was there that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. The, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. Moses was not praying. Moses was not worshiping. Moses was not seeking the Lord. But the Lord was seeking and moving and calling and initiating and asserting his eternal purpose. And so God called Moses, Moses. Our God is sovereign. Second, our God delivers people who call on him so that they might know, so that they'll know and that they will see that our God is also holy. The startling way that God sees fit to reveal himself to Moses is through, it's through fire. According to verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. It's literally a fiery flame, or in the way we would say it is, it was, it was blazing. And normally a blazing fire consumes things. You know, you put branches in, you put a log in, what happens? All you got left is ashes, no more branches, no more logs. You get too close, you lose something else. Eyebrows. Hair in your knuckles, skin. Normally, God is a consuming fire. Just ask the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. Those cities were consumed by fire. But here, the fire, it's remarkably, it is not consuming. God's here. Verse 4 says, God called to him out of the bush. God is revealing himself. God is discernibly present. And the fire is a token of his presence. But God is also near in a, a non-consuming relational way. <laughs> he, does, he does that double address thing. Moses, Moses. God does that when he's initiating an, an, an intimate connection. Jacob, Jacob, Peter, Peter, Martha, Martha, Saul, Saul. But, but Moses knows not to respond with too much familiarity. In fact, as one commentator, I think, accurately translates Moses' response, you know, here I am with, yes, sir. <laughs> I think that's what that means. And then comes God's. This is the moment we've been waiting for. God's first Words in 400 years. 
How does God break the silence? Verse 5. Do not come near. Listen very carefully. God does not let Moses or anybody else define him. Nor does God let Moses or anyone else establish the terms of our relationship with him. Stay clear. Not another step. Provision has to be made. We dare not forget that our encounters with God, our worship of God, our drawing near to God, they're anything but ordinary. Holiness means separate. It, It means wholly different, wholly other, like infinitely other. Holiness is God's absolute and infinite moral perfection. He is so pure. He is so white hot in his sinless righteousness that Moses rightly understands that that the only appropriate posture before the Lord is to hide his face. Why? Exodus 33 verse 20 says, God says, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. So in this first person-to-person encounter with the Lord in 400 years, (laughs) Moses learns something absolutely foundational regarding who God is. This, This is the prerequisite knowledge, the first thing that we need to know about who God is. Our God is holy. And friends, we should ask ourselves, uh, have, have, have I grown inappropriately familiar with God? Has God shrunk to my creative imagination? Like, he's, he's my little buddy. Have we redefined God until he thinks and acts and operates the way we think and act and operate, or the way we think he should? Listen, God is not our equal, and before we will relate to him rightly, we must know that God is not safe. We cannot approach him apart from His provision. So beware. Beware if you're treating God like He's tame, like He's some glass that you can can pour into that glass, whatever content you decide. No, God is the one who defines Himself, and He will not be trifled with. And if we've not beheld God as holy, then we have not beheld Him. And now here's the, the third and last thing. Our God is merciful. The God who answers the cry of people to deliver them from the power of evil. He is compassionate. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. After warning Moses, God inv- after warning him, God invites him closer. And, and he communicates with this familiarity. 
And so in verse 6 it says, I'm the God of your father. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob. So, so here God communicates all this relational history. You know, he can locate himself there. I'm the God who rescued you at birth. I'm the God who made a, a covenant with that moon worshiper ancestor, Abraham. I, I'm the God of, of those shameless liars, Isaac and Jacob. Also should be noted that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all had, they all three had wives who could not conceive, but yet through whom God worked powerfully. And God communicates his heart. I have seen the affliction of my people. I know how they have suffered. I have not forgotten my covenant with them. I hear their cry. It is significant. It is significant to notice the verbal shift from Exodus chapter 2 where God's, it says that God sees and hears the groans of the people to Exodus chapter 3 where God sees and hears and knows the suffering of my people. The, the, the trouble of God's people is personal to him. God's not indifferent to your fading hopes or shattered dreams or anonymous, hidden, obscure chapter of life. In verse 8, God says, I have come down. To deliver. The the moment for action has come. God made a promise. God will keep his promise. He is not. He's not soft and sentimental. And then not do anything. He's come down. To bring Israel up. Verse 8. I've come down to bring them up. Out of the land to a good and broad land. A land flowing with milk and honey. God is bringing his people up. Into a land that God is about to make holy through the... There's nothing holy about this land. (laughs) He's going to make the land holy through the presence of his people. That's really important. The land land into which God is bringing his people is a place where they're going to be living out their covenant relationship with him. Yeah, uh, A few months ago, I saw this land. I saw the land around the Jordan with my own eyes. And let me tell you, it is not a garden. It's not like the lush Nile Delta back in Egypt. It's not the candy cane forest surrounded by the sea of swirly-twirly gumdrops. It is a dry, arid, brown, viticulture kind of land. The Hebrews were not being given a playground They were being brought up and into a land that would require faith. Faith to engage this evil enemy. Faith to turn this land into a holy place. And when God heard their cry, the answer was not deliverance from earthly challenges. It was deliverance into the realization of the fullness of their relationship with him. That's what God will do when you cry out to him in your day of trouble. So, what is God like? The God who promises to deliver people from the power of evil 
when they call upon him. He, he is the God who comes, he comes unasked for. He is holy and draws near on his own terms. He saves helpless people for a relationship with himself. And get this, there was never a more blazing display of this, of God's holiness, than on the cross at Calvary. There, that display of God's holiness met the most stunning display of God's, God's unasked for, undeserved compassion and mercy ever seen in the death of Jesus to save and set people free from the power of evil, which he will do for you today. Friends, entrust yourselves to this God. Call upon him in your day of trouble. He will deliver you and you will glorify him. Let's pray. And so, Father in heaven, so thankful that we can call you Father because you have made a provision for us to do so in the person and work of our Lord Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we can call you Father. It's in Jesus that we draw near to you. It's through Christ, our high priest, our mediator, that we have access into your glory, your glorious grace. Thank you for that gift. And so for, for those, Lord, in this place today who... have trouble, for those who are stuck in unbelief, stuck in disobedience, haven't, haven't experienced any breakthrough for years, decades perhaps, we would ask boldly, courageously, confidently, Entrusting ourselves to you and your promise that when we cry out to you to deliver us from the power of evil, whatever that looks like, you will deliver us and we shall glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.